Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Financial Times. We value your feedback. Please go to ft.com slash listen and fill out a short survey for a chance to win a pair of Bose acoustic noise-cancelling headphones. The FT Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Caroline Binham, our regulation correspondent. Also down the line from Munich, we have James Schotter. And also on the line, we have Hugh Van Steenis from Morgan Stanley, a banks analyst there. Today, we'll be talking about the latest Q1 results from the banks, as bumper numbers from the US set the tone for the rest of the world. Secondly, we'll be turning our attention to Deutsche Bank as it prepares to unveil a strategic review as well as a very expensive LIBOR settlement. And finally, a look at HSBC as it readies itself for a pretty tumultuous annual general meeting. First, though, to those fairly upbeat results. Tuesday has seen Credit Suisse beat expectations, certainly in some areas following on from some pretty successful numbers from the US banks. Hugh, if I could bring you in, in terms of your assessment of how this first quarter has gone, it certainly feels as if the US banks have outperformed to a degree because they've won market share from the Europeans. Well, yes. I mean, first and foremost, I think QE is giving all the wholesale banks and asset managers a real boost. Cheap money and diverging monetary policy is driving investors to reallocate their portfolios, whether it be from cash into equities or out of euros into dollars. And so we've seen significant trading in equities and macro. For me, the standout has actually been equity trading. In dollar terms, it's up 21% this year on last year for the first six firms to report. And whilst fixed income and investment banking are up to 1% to 3%. But probably much more importantly is this is the best quarter for some of the firms since 2007, and every single one of them so far has made their cost of capital. So I think it really underscores a a great quarter. As you said, though, I think the European firms are really on the back foot while the U.S. firms are pressing their advantage. And I think that's a combination of the U.S. economy being more robust, but I think it's also European firms are simply on the back foot because they make half the returns on leveraged capital. And as European regulators start to focus much more intensely on leverage ratios, the Europeans have to shrink. And so I think the European firms will do less well this quarter than the US ones. Now, you mentioned at the beginning the kind of QE, Philip, that's helped everyone. And I guess the oil price has been a boost to some as well. But how much of this effect is going to be a temporary phenomenon, do you think, especially when the Federal Reserve starts to raise rates? Are we going to see all these exceptional profits evaporate again? I think the uh, answer to that question really boils down to how much the nascent Eurozone recovery really follows through and, you know, when we really start to see the U.S. tighten. 
I think part of what's driven this year's earnings has been the divergence in monetary policy. And as that continued guessing game about when and how interest rates get set in the US versus Europe, I think there's continued constructive momentum as macro investors uh, reallocate. But I think it really comes down to the economic recovery. And the fear is that the sugar high fades if economic recovery stalls like we saw in Japan. But for the moment, I think there's actually some more momentum coming through both Q2 and into the second half of this year. Well, let me bring uh, Martin in at that point. We've obviously had only one European bank report on Tuesday. Credit Suisse's numbers, as I said, fairly decent ones. But we're going to have another few weeks of results from the European banks. What's your take on this whole Q1 season, Martin? Well, so far, so mixed, I would say. Credit Suisse, you know, as Hughes just explained, very strong rebound, particularly in equity trading, but across the board and their trading operations very strong. Not so strong in classic investment banking. So the advisory business, M&A advisory, equity capital markets, debt capital markets, where they seem to have lost some ground. But uh, interestingly, the shares down 3% this morning, basically because there's a focus on capital. And new chief executive coming in, Tijan Tiam from the Pru, replacing Brady Duggan, the long-standing chief executive of Credit Suisse, widely expected to look at Credit Suisse's capital. And as Hugh mentioned, you know, regulators are really focusing in on the leverage ratio, which is the amount of capital that these banks hold versus their total assets. And the European banks, particularly investment banks like Barclays, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, are all weak in this area compared with their US brethren. And it's interesting to me that there's this focus on capital for Credit Suisse, and I imagine there will be for Barclays and particularly Deutsche, but there hasn't been for Goldman, Morgan Stanley, City, which have all come out with results, you know, Bank of America, hardly any focus on that. And euphoria around the first quarter trading from their figures, shares are pushing, you know, recent highs. And yet the European banks are still repairing their balance sheets, it feels like. Well, we'll see how that US-Europe split widens over the coming weeks. Thank you, Hugh and Martin, for that. So our second subject for the day is Deutsche Bank, which has a big week ahead. Not only is it due to announce or at least agree internally on a new strategic plan, it's also preparing to settle long-standing accusations that it manipulated LIBOR. On the first of those topics, James Schotter joins me from Munich. Thanks, James, for joining us from a train, I gather. You've been reporting on the expectations for this strategy plan, which started to leak out over the weekend. What have you discovered? Well, basically, Deutsche is having spent the last few months reviewing what it would do as its strategy. It's whittled its options down to two. The first would be to sell off its post-bank business and refocus its remaining retail operations on wealthier clients and at the same time cut back assets in its investment bank by about 160 billion euros. The more radical option that it's also been considering is to split itself up effectively into two legal entities, the first of which would contain its investment bank, assets and wealth management operations and its global transaction banking division, and the second of which would contain its own brand retail business and Postbank, which would be merged in the next couple of years before then being disposed of in about two, two and a half years' time. And the idea is that this process would raise enough capital to leave both the investment bank and the retail bank strong enough to stand on their own. The management bank board has been back and forth between the two options, but could be in a position to recommend one of them to Deutsche's supervisory board on Friday. And you say they've been debating one option over another for the past few months, really, haven't they? But where do you think they're going to end up? I think 
at this stage, it looks like they're probably more likely to plump for the option of getting rid of Postbank but keeping their own retail business. There are questions over both the two options. In the case of getting rid of Postbank, the question is how deep cuts they would need to make to their remaining retail business to accommodate the fact that its revenues would be much lower. In the case of spinning off the whole retail bank, the question would be whether the investment bank would be able to meet tough funding requirements under stress conditions without the deposits that the retail bank provides. So those are the, sort of the two considerations that are holding up the decision. Well, we will wait with bated breath for that decision. As you say, it could be taken as early as Friday this week. Thank you very much for that, James. Let me turn now to the second question hanging over Deutsche. I've got Caroline Binham here who's been looking at the expected LIBOR settlement. So, Caroline, it seems as if Deutsche is facing one of the biggest fines that any bank has had to face over LIBOR manipulation. Finally, yes. Seven years after authorities in the US first started their LIBOR investigation back in 2008, Deutsche looks like it should be ready to settle the allegations possibly as early as Thursday. The fine could be as high as $1.5 billion. A lot of that is dependent on whether the New York Department of Financial Services, which is run by Benjamin Lorsky, takes part in that deal as well. If it does not, then we're being guided that the total could be about a billion dollars. Either way, one of the highest fines that we've seen so far in LIBOR. And how damaging is it for Andrew Jane, the co-chief executive who before taking the top job, was head of the investment bank, which, of course, is where the LIBOR abuses took place. It's a difficult week for him either way because this strategy review is also going to reopen questions about whether they've followed the right direction until now. Do you see his position as being under threat? Possibly. A lot will depend on the evidence that comes out on Thursday. The emails that have now become a tradition amongst reporters that detail Bollinger being exchanged in exchange for rigging, a lot will depend on whether that can be traced all the way to the top and whether Anshu knew what was going on in his team when he was heading up the investment bank. We haven't seen too much chief executive fallout on LIBOR. The head of Rabobank had to step down, if you remember, and also RP Martin, the broker as well. Um, on Barclays, however, that was when we last saw a real cataclysmic change at the top. And Barclays was the first bank to settle LIBOR back in 2012. And you'll remember that Bob Diamond had to go pretty quickly. So I think Anshu will definitely have an eye on that particular example. The internal kind of rumour mill is allegedly anyway that the kind of juicy emails that existed around Barclays and extended quite a way up the organisation are not quite so damning in Deutsch's case. But um, time will tell when we see the full settlement. Thank you for that, Caroline. We should move on to our final topic, which is HSBC. They have their annual shareholder meeting on Friday, Martin, and it comes a few days after we reported that Stuart Gulliver, the chief executive, is preparing a new strategy with some fairly or potentially dramatic strategic change. Yeah, the new strategic plan that is expected to be unveiled to investors in early June briefly is more shrinkage, more simplification, a deeper kind of version of the restructuring that Stuart Gulliver first announced when he first took over in 2011, which involved selling off about 70-plus businesses and retreating from several of the smaller markets they were in. This time they're going to go a bit further, and except from 
some of the bigger markets we've heard, including Brazil, where they expanded before the crisis via a large acquisition, and they rank about number four in that market. And also Turkey, where equally they expanded their operations there through the acquisition of Denny's Bank before the crisis. And um, both of those markets, they've been making fairly heavy losses in particularly their retail business. So this is seen as a retreat from those retail markets. They've considered underperforming operations in Mexico and the US and and Argentina as well. But we're hearing that those may survive within the group because they can see more strategic sense in keeping hold of them. There's also likely to be some fairly important cuts to the investment bank, which last year underperformed and contributed to a general underperformance by HSBC where pre-tax profits fell, the return on equity target that Stuart Gulliver had set had to be lowered and the bank abandoned its cost efficiency target. And in fact, costs have really increased quite dramatically. The bank blames this on um, the impact of regulation and compliance. It's all a pretty poisonous cocktail for Mr Gulliver, isn't it? Far worse than I think he expected when he took the job back in 2011. Do you think investors are going to be placated by whatever they come out with? We'll see. I mean, most investors that we've spoken to feel like Stuart Gulliver's heading in the right direction. But just that, this is a massive bank with a two and a half trillion dollar balance sheet, operations in you know 70 plus countries, a quarter of a million staff. And it's a super tanker, and you don't turn that kind of business around overnight. So they think he's going the right direction. Some of them think he should do it faster, do do it harder, do it quicker, focus more on their core businesses where they really make money, which are their Asian retail business, particularly in Hong Kong, where they're dominant, their global commercial business, which is strongly performing, and their UK retail arm and cut back costs in other areas because um, you know they, they've this ex- expansion that they've been on for the past few decades hasn't really worked out. Now, there are going to be pretty difficult questions from investors at the AGM on Friday, not least over governance, where um, some of the proxy agencies have recommended that shareholders vote against Rona Fairhead, who's been on the board for more than 10 years and used to chair its audit committee and is currently chairman of its US operations. And uh, there could be questions over pay as well. I mean, Stuart Gulliver's pay of over £7 million was docked because of their fine for manipulating foreign exchange markets and it did reflect the downturn in performance but some investors might feel that overall pay isn't being reduced in line with the disappointing performance. One last thing just to point out is after the bank levy in the UK was raised by George Osborne, the Chancellor, in the budget earlier this year, there are bound to be questions from investors about whether the bank should reconsider having its domicile in the UK and whether it should move back to Hong Kong. And indeed, at a private investor meeting earlier this week, Douglas Flint, the chairman, addressed this and said that they will only look at this once there's clarity in terms of regulation and they're getting close to that. So he's suggesting that they will start to look at that uh, fairly soon once they can see a kind of clear picture on regulation. And obviously that requires the result of the election to be known. Indeed. Well, uh, either way, we're well set, I think, for a fairly fiery AGM on Friday. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Caroline here in the studio, James on a train to Munich, and also Hugh Van Steenis from Morgan Stanley. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. We'd also love to hear your view on the podcast. So do uh, log on to our website, ft.com slash listen, and give us your views for a chance also to win a pair of noise-reducing headphones through which to listen to the podcast. 
Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.